Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Charva Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. So today's subject is going to be an interesting one because uh, what has happened, what has gone down in the United States of America in the last few days has kind of created kind of a ripple around the world. And, and to say the least, it has been a topic of discussion in India. And I have with me, uh, I don't know what to say, uh, opinion journalist and a podcaster. Uh, last time when Brad had come on the podcast, so I had only spoken about his opinion journalism. So now, so now I know Brad has a proper podcast too. So Brad, thanks for coming on the podcast once more. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I'm excited to break down all the crazy stuff that's been happening here because boy, what a couple of weeks it has been. Uh, absolutely, Brad. So Brad, before we get into the meat of the subject, which is going to be what has happened post uh, the Capitol uh, Hill. Uh, what word do we use, Brad? Do we call it uh, like uh, riot? Uh, yeah, do we call it a riot? Do we call it an attack? Or as I've heard with some mainstream media channels in the United States of America, uh, I'll be very clear, they're left-leaning channels. So, so look, for me, uh, from where I stand, I watch everything in America. So I, I'll maybe watch Fox News. I'll watch a mm-hmm. CNN. And they seem to be calling this a coup attempt. So where do you stand in terms of if we were to use to, uh, a proper terminology to uh, lay down what happened on that day? I think to call it a coup attempt would be almost to take it too seriously or more seriously than it actually was. Uh, They were trying to disrupt a constitutional function of government. So the Congress was meeting to vote and certify the election results and they were trying to disrupt it. But I mean, they weren't really ever realistically attempting to have an armed overthrow of the United States of America. They were trying to disrupt something and they committed crimes. Let's be very clear. This wasn't a peaceful protest, which I always support. And that's our First Amendment. And that's your right. And there are a lot of Trump supporters who went to Washington, D.C. and engaged in peaceful protests. And that's okay. But there was that group, a large group, uh, that attacked the U.S. Capitol and attacked police officers. And several people were killed. Members of Congress were hiding behind benches. So I think it was an act of violence. I think it was a riot. I think it was a crime. Uh, And it it was really, really concerning uh, to see that happening here. And we need to really try to make sure nothing like that happens again in the next couple of weeks with inauguration coming up. So if I I was to ask you this as a follow-up in terms of uh, the impact of this event on conservative politics in general or conservatism in general, look, uh, you could always come back and uh, come back at me and say that, Look, Black Lives Matter has been rioting in America in all major cities all the time. But uh, Kushal, you never seem to be asking that question to the other side. But and and I acknowledge that, and I'm uh, and I'm conscious of that. But if I still wanted to ask you this question, that this is going to be the stick they're going to beat conservatives up with, I don't know for uh, eternity. So how does the conservative movement? get over this incident and and so i've been listening to ben shapiro i think ben ben has done a reasonably decent job in condemning what has happened uh what was very interesting was i never see ben shapiro taking names on his podcast or his show he's been taking names of these people who've been arrested i think last night uh, when i was uh, your morning my night so when i was watching his show uh i was shocked to see ben actually taking names and he was like 
this person, this person, this person, this person, and I'm ashamed of these people. They are a blot on American uh, uh, politics. Uh, they are a blot on our society, and they should be punished by the full extent of the law. But having said that, we uh, anybody who's been reasonably connected with politics in 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 anywhere in the world knows that there is no such thing as redemption anymore, at least in the woke world. So how does the conservative movement redeem itself then? I think it's important to come down on the right side of this one. So, for example, the politicians that really enabled this, like Senator Josh Hawley and Senator Ted Cruz, they knew there was no widespread stolen election fraud conspiracy, but they still objected to the election results. And they gave rise to this big movement that is very misleading. A lot of Americans have been lied to. They've been told the election was stolen and it wasn't. Uh, and so I think those particular politicians, this may be career ending for them. For President Trump, uh, a lot of Republicans bailed on the Trump train after how he handled this and they got the heck out of there and they said, we're not supporting this guy anymore. He's dipped significantly in public opinion polling uh, since two weeks ago. I, th I think I saw he was down 12 points among Republicans that say they don't support him anymore. And many elected officials who were tight with him are now coming out and jumping off and saying, hey, this is totally wrong. So I think the specific politicians, this will haunt them. But for the conservative movement broadly and for leaders and thinkers like Ben that you mentioned, who I like a lot, as long as you come down on the right side of this and you condemn the rioting, you condemn the crimes and you're very, you don't make any kind of winks or nods at it, I think you're fine. I think nobody can really hold that against you. They will try, but but the liberal media tries everything. They're constantly saying everyone on the right is evil, bigot, crazy, radical, whatever. So it, it doesn't really stick, uh, but it's important to just do the right thing. And I think as long as you do what Ben and other people have done and kind of condemn the criminal element of this, it's going to be, it, it won't haunt you because it's really not the fault of mainstream conservatives. This is a tiny fringe that did this. This is not all Trump supporters. This is not all Republicans. This is the fringe of the fringe, a tiny, tiny subset that went and engaged in this behavior in the Capitol in Washington, D.C. So I don't think it's at all representative of the broader conservative movement. I have to say that uh, that guy who was wear, dressed up like a barbarian, I found out that he only eats organic food. What the hell happened to the conservative movement since when did it become woke? It's not. He's some crazy <laughs> lunatic. <laughs> so so I, I was listening to the news segment there. I think it was on Fox. I don't remember where. That Apparently, this guy has not had any food because jail food is not not organic and he can only eat organic food and in my brain i was like that's not the image of the conservative i ever had in america american conservatives were not about organic food but i guess we have uh, you know we have weirdos and everything so it's yeah he, i mean there's a few crazies in every movement and that's who those people were those were not the mainstream or the best and brightest at all yeah so I want to touch upon this. So you named Senator Ted Cruz, and I've been following his politics for a while. It was sometimes, you know, it's, it's kind of a blow hot, blow cold kind of a thing. You know what? I I can't look. I'm going to be asking you questions just because I don't have any dog in this fight, right? I I don't have anything. I'm just looking at it from an outsider's perspective. This is the man who Trump went after. He called him lying Ted Cruz. <laughs> he called his wife ugly. That's 
all we can say. That's all Trump did to him. He said his father was, I don't know, behind some assassination. Right. And of all the things, Ted Cruz hangs himself on this. What was he thinking? Honestly, I think he made a very short-sighted and foolish political calculation. And he thought, if I do this, I can do well in 2024 in a presidential election because all the Trump voters will love me. Um, and I, he was he made a big miscalculation, but that's always been the problem with Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz is a brilliant guy, a Harvard-educated lawyer. He's at times taken really principled and good stands for conservative ideas and philosophies and policies. But at the end of the day, he's so nakedly ambitious that he has no principles. It's really just obvious at this point. He'll just do anything. He'll forgive anything. He'll flip-flop on anything to get more power. He's the right Hillary Clinton. That's not kind to say, but it's the truth. Um, and so that's the problem with Ted Cruz. And I think it, it, it actually totally backfired. His 2024 prospects have never looked bleaker than they do right now. Yeah, that's a pretty big thing to state for a conservative or for someone who's on the right to say that he's the right to Hillary Clinton because the Hillary Clinton is one person nobody likes in the right wing. Well, she's a flip-flopper, right? The thing is she would have said anything to get power and she would change all her positions. And it's hard to look at Ted Cruz and not see the same thing these days. So, okay, so now let's get into the man who caused the ruckus, Donald Trump. So, look, I don't know whether he's going to be impeached or not. I I'm not able to understand American law, to be very honest. I think you need a two-thirds uh, majority to impeach him. Now, I don't know if that many Republican senators are really going to bite the bullet. As of now, I know three Republicans have said they're going to vote for impeaching Donald Trump. Now, there are rumors, I've heard that they're going to try to impeach him even after he's the president as a citizen, Donald Trump, uh, which means that they need 50% of the numbers. So I guess he can never fight an election. So can we confidently say then in that case, Brad, that the Donald Trump saga is officially over in American politics? No, I don't think we can. Uh, even in his when he finally conceded the election, he said that to his supporters that Trump is just beginning. Uh, so he's not going anywhere. Now, whether his politician career is over, maybe. But who knows? Maybe he'll have he'll go host a TV show on Newsmax or One American News um, and he'll have tens of millions of viewers and be the one of the biggest influences still. And alternatively, he still could run for president again. So the way that the impeachment works is kind of complicated, but it seems very unlikely that there's going to be time for him to be impeached by the House and have a trial by the Senate and removed from office, even if you had the votes, which we don't necessarily have the votes, right? The timing, he's only got like a week left in office, is so tight that it's probably not going to happen. Then the question becomes, do they impeach him after he leaves office, which is is very unusual. It might technically be allowed, but it would be very unusual. And you would still need a two-thirds majority in the Senate to vote to convict him. And then only then could you have another vote on whether he should be barred from public office. Uh, and that vote would only require a one-half majority, a simple majority, but you'd have to have the two-thirds vote first before you could do that second vote. So I am pretty skeptical that that will actually happen and go all the way through. It could, 
but it certainly is not guaranteed. And either way, the idea that Donald Trump is going to go away quietly into the night uh, is far-fetched. So one way or another, he's going to be around and loud for a long time. Yeah. Uh, and knowing Donald Trump and his personalities, I I'm not really surprised at what you're saying. I mean, he, he he's not one to go down easily. I mean, it, the proof is in the pudding, the way he's behaved uh, in the last few days where uh, it, it, it is all but clear that he's not going anywhere. Now, now let us get into the meat of the discussion because I really wanted to focus on that. So this is what has happened post what went down at the Capitol building. So as of now, I don't know, I've lost count, honestly, Brad, after a while. So we know that Twitter has permanently banned Trump from the platform. Uh, as far as I know, Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook uh, have and indefinitely suspended his account. Now, YouTube, too, today. Uh, YouTube gave him a community strike. I think that's what uh, they have done. So a community strike, uh, as far as YouTube is concerned, gives you a one-week ban or something of that sort. But uh, other than YouTube, I think Discord, Pinterest, TikTok, Shopify, Twitch, Google... Everybody seems to have done a number on Donald Trump. Now, once again, I'm going to be very clear. I'm not a fan of Donald Trump. I have always found him to be cringeworthy. But damn, what the hell is this? Uh, when you have Angela Merkel saying what is happening to Trump, and she hates Trump with a passion. Like Angela Merkel dislikes Trump. And when you have Angela Merkel stating this, so let me lay down the scenario to you. Uh, and I'll give you an example. Uh, in the latter part, because that should be our second second part of this discussion. But you have a scenario where, uh, at least in America, not so much in India. India still have a, has a cash economy. Uh, India is not as digitized or when it comes to in terms of economic transactions or in terms of your your usage of the Internet. India is still not there. But America, I mean, I've lived there and I know. Even when I used to live there in early 2000s, the internet was all over the place in America. To live in a country where you cannot be on any platform and then to say, okay, this is fine. You are a libertarian. In our last podcast, we, we discussed in detail the principles of libertarianism. And when I reached out to you in the DMs for the first time, because I am also kind of libertarian leaning, I told you, I very honestly, this is the first time in my life, my libertarian principles are being tested deeply. I mean, I don't know where to go. If, if you have three platforms, essentially, right, you have Twitter, Facebook, and Google. These are your three platforms that control the marketplace as far as you're putting out your thoughts in the marketplace of ideas is concerned. And if you shut the person out, what is a person got to do as a recourse, Brad? So... Let me start by saying I agree with you. I think it's very alarming and very concerning. I think it's horrible what they're doing. Um, I will offer the thought that even being banned from social media doesn't take away your ability to communicate with the public. It severely limits it. But for President Trump, for example, if he puts out a press release on his from his staff, what he says will be reported by Fox News, by CNN, by the New York Times, by the Wall Street Journal, and it will be reported by those people all across social media. The same way, if he, he hosts a television show, tens of millions of people will tune in to watch it. If he writes a newspaper op-ed, 
millions of people will read it. So I agree with you that being banned from social media really limits someone's ability to speak, but it doesn't totally eliminate it. There's still a number of ways around it. Uh, that said, though, it is extremely concerning. For me, though, the problem is not one with an easy answer. I, there, so it questions my libertarian principles only to the extent that I believe private companies have the right to do this, but I still think it's a horrible thing to do. The same way I believe in free speech, right? I can still say, well, what that person is saying is horrible and hateful. Um, and in the same way, I think what the big tech companies are doing right now is really disturbing. It's really quite alarming to me. But at the end of the day, they are private platforms. They're not covered by the First Amendment. We can't force them to host speech. Actually, that would violate the First Amendment. So there's not a lot the government can or should do, from my view, but that doesn't change the fact that it's still a really bad situation. So I think the only thing that where libertarianism comes in is not to say that this isn't a problem or that we shouldn't do something about it, but to simply say that turning to the government to take over, I think, would just make things worse. So, but Brad, here's the problem, right? It's just not, I cannot make a tweet anymore. PayPal will not be my payment processing guy. Amazon says, I'm not going to let you host a website. Then Deutsche Bank says, well, you know what? You can't have an account with us. Then Shopify says, you cannot sell merch on Shopify. Where does one go then? Yeah, so those parts, it gets really disturbing um, because those those are kind of different from social media companies because you do have to look at it differently when it's speech versus a transaction or a service, at least as far as the First Amendment is concerned. Um, but maybe there should be some sort of common carrier rules applied to credit card companies or something like that. We can certainly talk about it. Um, the Amazon Web Services thing is particularly alarming, but it is important to note that Parler, for example, will be able to migrate to a different um, web service and get up and running again. The other thing, too, is that Amazon Web Services is getting sued by Parler and may lose it, the suit because apparently they may have violated their contract with Parler by not giving them enough notice of suspending their services. So what happened there is pretty disturbing. But I will say, like, there's some remedies, even without changing anything, that are going to happen. So stay tuned on that one, at least. Um, but I really don't want us to, to become a country where there's a credit card companies are banning conservatives from using it. But I will say this, were they to do that, there's a huge market incentive for a competitor to start up and provide those services to the right, to right-wing Americans. And so they will do that. I mean, that will happen to some extent. There's going to be a market force and a market demand. Were they to start putting these really Orwellian restrictions on these services, there's still going to be a big group of people demanding services, which means there's a big pot of money waiting to be had. And an entrepreneur can come in and start up a competitor uh, and do it. So, well, well, a classic example of that would be if I, I don't know if you remember Lauren Southern, that uh, documentary filmmaker from Canada. I think she was a libertarian in Canada. I don't know if she was a lapsed libertarian. I don't know what it was. But then uh, Lauren uh, was dropped from Patreon 
for some of the work she did in in, in it was either Sweden or uh, some European country about my immigrants coming from some part of the world and she was dropped from Patreon for uh, violating their privacy uh, policies and I remember Jordan Peterson immediately had said look we're going to come up with some payment processing option along with Dave Rubin so Dave Rubin left Patreon Jordan Peterson left Patreon and they did come up with an option and their supporters now do have that so i kind of get your point but this is a much larger picture because my my problem here is that you create a monopoly now even with the web hosting services the market has basically i think 60% share is amazon then you have the second biggest player in microsoft is around 16% which is a huge drop right from 60% you go down to 16% and then there's one more player i don't remember the name of the hosting services company i think there are three major players globally now if amazon decides decides to shut you down now it's pretty much game over for you in that case right i mean that is really disturbing and i think it's wrong the question is what could the government do about it and i'm not sure what the answer is there so okay so let's let's have a follow up on that now in the case of the internet uh now you may actually you may not support net neutrality too because no. i i yeah so so could you give a net neutrality argument to these companies just like internet has to be a public utility now and you can't shut somebody's internet connection down right so that that's the argument given by one side of the aisle so can you then say that these tech platforms because they are monopolies now are kind of public squares and because they are monopolies they cannot remove people from their platforms until and unless it goes through a proper court procedure or some sort of a, of a no case. so you have to separate social media from like amazon web services cuz they're two kind of very different things and with social media you can't do that one i don't really agree that they're monopolies the social media companies um they're definitely a concentrated market with a few big players but a lot of the things that they do like what is a monopoly what 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 service does facebook have a monopoly on Facebook Marketplace competes with Amazon and eBay and Target and Walmart. Facebook video sharing competes with YouTube and streaming services and television. Uh the social media aspect of it competes with Twitter, it comp- Facebook Messenger competes with text messaging, with WhatsApp, with Signal. You know what I'm saying? Like they're not really a monopoly. I think that's a little bit misleading, but even if they were, The thing about social media companies is what is that issue is speech. So the government could not constitutionally force companies to host speech that they disagree with. That would be a violation of those companies' first amendment rights. So even if I would like that outcome, I just don't think the constitution would allow you to do that. It's kind of like uh the the whole Christian Baker cake case with where a gay couple wanted to force a Christian baker to ma- bake a cake for him. and i i supported the baker's first amendment right to not have to do that um but it's the same kind of principle that the first amendment protects your right to not be compelled to engage in speech and it would be a violation of that right to force twitter to host speech and ideas it doesn't agree with and promote them now what what can you do all ultimately consumers have a lot of power here still 
So one thing that I take some small solace in is that remember when uh, Twitter banned the New York Post's reporting on Hunter Biden? That was really disturbing to me as a journalist, that they throttled the news story, which, looking back, has not been proven false. <laughs> Uh, but actually, there was so much backlash to what Twitter did that they changed their rules and they said they will not be throttling links, news links anymore and blocking them. So consumers still have some power. And I think that's probably a more promising solution because you're not going to run into the same legal problems. Consumers need to push back on these companies and demand changes. That's ultimately they're profit driven. And with, when consumers if enough consumers want them to host different ideas and speech, they will have to. All right. So how about this? I'm not saying this is the right answer, but I'm just trying to push it out there for, you know, for the listeners of the podcast. Uh, if you remember the Microsoft case, if I remember the name of the judge, the judge was Thomas Penfield Jackson, and he had used the Sherman Antitrust Act. It was some relic of 1890, if I remember, right? It was an old, uh, old, uh, old ass uh, mm -hmm. act in the American law. And uh, if I remember, the judge's reasoning was that Microsoft was in a unique position when the marketplace, which it, it was kind of creating a scenario which was a monopoly. And it was the key word the judge uh, at that time had used was, it was a threat to innovation in the industry. Now, can we say these companies are creating a left-wing thought cartel, all of them together, and they are now becoming an imp impediment in a weird way to innovation in this industry if they're going to stop you everywhere? I mean, I'll give you another example. I'm sure you remember the states in America which would not allow... Uh, marijuana companies to have bank accounts. So you had a weird scenario where marijuana companies would have bags of cash and they would go to the other state to just to deposit their money because they can, they have to go. I mean, I just saw that news uh, article and I was just imagining, oh my God, how much security costs these people must be having because marijuana companies cannot have a bank account in that damn state. Yeah, that's a crazy example. Um, I think, though, the Microsoft situation actually kind of shows you why the antitrust isn't justified in the sense that people said Internet Explorer, the first web browser, was a monopoly. Nobody uses Internet Explorer anymore, right? People said MySpace was a monopoly and there were no, there, no new network could start up. People said Facebook and Instagram had a monopoly. Nothing could ever start up. Now TikTok is huge. TikTok just got a billion users or whatever, uh, starting up out of almost nowhere as a very small startup and then growing much bigger and competing with Instagram and it, it hugely actually in Snapchat. So competition can still happen here. These, these are crowded markets with a few big actors, but we've seen time and time again that there's still innovation. There's still disruption that's happening. So I don't really see that aspect of it as having been borne out in the history of the tech sector the last couple of decades. So so, so are we essentially looking at the next decade where there'll be a Republican hamburger and then there'll be a Democrat hamburger, there'll be a Republican hot dog, and then there'll be a Democrat hot dog. I don't know which one I'm going to have when I visit America. I like both. So are we looking at a Republican Twitter and a Democrat Twitter, a Republican payment portal and a Democrat payment portal? What kind of a society? Now let's get into the social implications of this and then maybe I can take a few questions from the live viewers too. But what are the social implications of this? I mean, I, I can't wrap my head around this 
stupid system that, and I don't blame the conservatives for this. Don't get me wrong. I blame the left for this. This kind of a purity and pollution. It's almost like a caste system. It's like, you're not allowed. You are allowed. Uh, you're impure. Off my platform, off my front yard. You're not here. I'm not going to let you live. I'm not even going to let you take money from other people. You're that impure for me. And then obviously there's going to be a market like Elon Musk. All it took was Elon Musk to say, Signal seems to be nice. And oh boy, <laughs> have we seen downloads of Signal uh, app around the world. So so do you see in the foreseeable future, and unlike the world, I think most people don't realize that uh, in America, if there are left-wing tech billionaires, there are right-wing, maybe not in tech, but there are other billionaires in America too. And they're going to be like, oh, there's a market there now? Let me put in money. So are we yeah. going to in that kind of a scenario? And what are the societal implications? So one, I think we are in that kind of scenario. And I wouldn't be surprised to see, say, Peter Thiel, who's a Republican billionaire tech mogul from PayPal, uh, or like you said, Elon Musk, who is not afraid to pick a bone with the left, uh, to have, see them pouring massive amounts of capital into a, a more legitimate competitor to these tech companies because there was parlor but parlor was small and it was very poorly designed in terms of its user interface and it didn't have like a huge investment or anything so i appreciate what they tried to do but i think there's going to be a demand for a massive new alternative and that you could very well see those people now as to your concern about their becoming republican and liberal hamburgers I think like literal hamburgers like McDonald's, it's not going to happen, but you may actually see that, right? You may actually see a Venmo type service that only doesn't allow for guns or for purchasing of Bibles or whatever it may be. And so conservatives leave uh, and they go to a different one and it, they become siloed. And there is a liberal payment services company and a Republican payment services company. And I think that's very unfortunate because one thing that research shows and kind of sociology shows is that what people inside echo chambers grow more extreme. So if you're around a bunch of people that only have the same thoughts as you, you feed off of each other in a loop and you end up becoming more and more extreme. And right now we have a problem on the left with extremism, right? People embracing socialism, people wanting to dismantle the, the system, people embracing rioting in major cities in the name of BLM. And then on the right, you have QAnon conspiracies, you have far right people attacking the US Capitol. And part of the reason I think it's so objectionable to be engaging in this kind of censorship is because it feeds into these silos, right? All the conservatives are going to go beyond Republican Twitter, right? All the liberals are going to be on Facebook and conservatives will be on something else. It's like it's just going to make this problem worse and make people more extreme and push us farther apart. So I agree. I think it's a big problem. And I'd like to see everybody across the board demand neutrality from companies, because if people demanded it, we would get it. The problem is that people don't demand it. Um, and I don't know how we change that. We've got to change people's hearts and minds one at a time. Yeah, but here's the thing. Uh, when I listen to commentary on the left, like I always do this thing. And I think I did it as an exercise. And I, I actually recommend this for everybody across uh, the world. 
if you want to have a good perspective about your own politics listen to the politics of another country and then you'll get a good perspective about your politics so so for me i i follow canadian and american politics just to get a perspective on indian politics so what i do is i listen to part save america then i'll maybe listen to a ben shapiro uh to get an understanding of where these two sets of ideas stand in these countries and obviously then i'll read uh, some other uh, op-eds too but what what i have realized over the years is that the left is taking quantum leaps when it comes to rigidity the conservatives uh not so many in fact i don't see any major change in attitude say from a conservative of 2010 to 2020 they're pretty much similar i mean there there are no major changes in in their See, i would disagree with that oh uh, that's interesting so so uh, how, how do you think conservatism has changed then so i don't think they've changed that much on policy but i think they've become a lot more accepting of conspiracy theories and of uh really bad behavior so the policy with a few issues it has changed like immigration and like free trade but the policy has not changed very much for republicans over the last 10 15 years whereas for democrats it really has they've sprinted to the hard left on policy but republicans have been more tolerant of kind of crazy figures of like they elected a qanon person to congress that would never have happened in 2010 right they elected donald trump despite all his really quite uh impolite to put it kindly language and words and his conspiracies that he would tout and the really bad things he would say sometimes in 2010 right in 2008 rather they elected John McCain who you I have many disagreements with the, the late McCain on policy but he was very much like an upstanding gentleman type and that used to be what the republicans and conservatives demanded and they've totally changed on that now they just want somebody who fights and so they're much more accepting of conspiracies and character flaws and and so I think that is a big shift that has happened on the American right. Yeah, I kind of agree with you when when Alex Jones says these people are crazy <laughs> you need to take attention maybe pay attention and Alex Jones thought what are these people doing at the Capitol building so you need to pay attention yeah so I kind of get but yeah my point was more on the policy end with the democrats so so my whole point with the left was that i remember obama being anti gay marriage in his first term uh hillary being anti gay marriage and they just something happened inside the american left and they just flipped they did a 180 on all these things i don't know what happened and then it was as if trump came in and shit hit the roof and they could not take it anymore and then this whole i don't know the woke uh I think it's a virus like it's a mind virus and it has entered the American body politic and I'll tell you why I get bothered by it the most because America influences the world. So, so just to give you an example I know you know nothing about cricket other than that it seems to be something like baseball but so recently I was just reading an op-ed in it's not an Indian newspaper it's something in the west and you know these speak uh, I have to give it to the westerners they seem to find the weirdest Indians to write about India. I have to give it to them. It's like they will pick that one weird Indian who has the weirdest view about India. And this was an op-ed about cricket and how Indian Brahmins, upper caste, like cricket because it is a sport that does not involve touching. And I was like, hang on, what the 
hell has that got to do with anything? And this is American vocism being applied to a sport that is the biggest sport in India. It, it's worth billions of dollars. And my whole thing with America, this is where I always tell Americans, when will you fight against this disease? Because it's coming to my land. <laughs> All I care about is what happens to my land. You guys deal with it in your land. So why isn't anybody fighting against this? And I thought Trump was kind of the answer to wokeness. And obviously, it did not work out. But how do you fight if Trump could not? I mean, a crazy guy like Trump could not do it. So how do you think Republicans are going to answer to this wokeism? Well, a lot of people are fighting against it. Uh, when you look at people online, when, like the intellectual dark web, when you look at uh, Republican politicians, they fight against it. So I think there is a movement to fight against it. And what's weird is that there actually is, when you look at polling, a really high number of Democrats and African-Americans and Hispanic Americans will agree with things like political correctness has gone too far. Identity politics has gone too far. But what the problem is, is that they're scared, right? They're scared of this 20% of the country that's really extreme woke left that will cancel people and will social media mob people. So I think the only way you defeat this is by stop by standing up to the mobs and stop bowing to the mobs. Stop apologizing unless you've truly done something wrong. Stop resigning. Stop firing people. Start taking stands against the mob. I was actually, and it's a it's all task. Don't get me wrong, but I was actually heartened to see something the other day. There was a bookstore in Portland where Antifa uh, was protesting them and trying to get them to shut down. Uh, because they were selling a book that these Antifa people don't like. It was by a journalist and it was chronicling and criticizing Antifa. And this bookstore said, no, we, we believe in selling books, even ideas we don't agree with or we think are bad. The point is book, of books is to learn and engage in debate. And we're going to sell this book and you protesters can piss off. The same way Trader Joe's, an American grocery store company, they had uh, some a bunch of like woke mobs that were complaining that some of their nicknames they have for their food were racist or something silly when they obviously were harmless. They just said they put out a statement. They said, nope, we don't care what you think. There's nothing wrong with them. We're keeping them. And then the mob moved on. More people need to stand up to the mob and win. And then we can start breaking this vicious cycle. But when people when it keeps being successful and they successfully get like, the New York Times fired their op-ed editor for running an op-ed by a Republican senator that was controversial when that's Come literally on, right? the point of op-ed is to have opinion arguments that are controversial. Um, but so we have to, what we have to do is stop those scenarios where it's winning because so long as that tactic is winning in many cases, it will, people will keep doing it now. So, but if we were to take a stand and if more people were to be like that bookstore uh, then I think it would it would stop. Yeah, but uh, I think you're talking about the book by Andrew Andy No, right? Yes. Uh, used to, yeah. So Andy No's book, but I think what the the store has done is that they're not going to keep physical copies in that particular store, but they're going to keep the copies digitally or something of that sort, right? Well, they were never going. They never had physical copies of the book, so it's not uh, like they changed to accommodate the mob. Their plan. So with bookstores now, they have like. 200 books that they sell in the store and then 2000 on their website or whatever it may be. They don't fully stock every book in person. Uh, and so they didn't change to accommodate the mob. Their original plan was to have the book not in person, but online. And they stuck to it. 
So I think it was actually a decent example. Yeah, so that's good. And good for Andy. No, I think he's going to sell a lot of books. Just He's going to sell more books now because of this. <laughs> yeah, so so he's going to be sitting in the corner saying, thank you very much, Antifa. You really made my day. I'm going to make a lot more royalty money over this. So yeah, good for him. But uh, then uh, you have a similar scenario with Simon and Schuster. They deplatformed uh, someone, right? Recently, I forgot the name. Josh Hawley, Senator Josh Hawley. Yeah. yeah, Josh Hawley. And I think Josh Hawley is going to be taking them to court. Uh, that's the case, right? Yeah. I don't think that's actually a very good example, though, of, of like wokeness or cancel culture. Because Josh Hawley, when he was complaining about them canceling his book deal, he said it was an insult to the First Amendment or an attack on the First Amendment. And it really isn't. So a private book publisher has no obligation to publish your book. And if they and they most contracts like that have a clause where they say like if we think you're being publicly immoral or saying horribly offensive things, we can cancel our contract. So what Josh Hawley did was try to basically block the democratic results of an election and they said, "Hey, we don't want to associate with that. We're canceling your book deal." I think that's honestly not that bad. That's not like canceling someone for old tweets or for like a joke out of context. Like he did something very controversial and they disassociated from him. And there's also, it's not like it's a monopoly. Like there's a million book publishers under the sun and there's a lot of conservative book publishers who I'm sure will publish his book. So I don't think that one is really that troubling of an example. Um, yeah, I, that one doesn't really concern me very much. I, it feels like they're just kind of using their freedom of association. So so if I was to listen to you, would my conclusion about this would be that actually I should be more positive as there is a business opportunity right now in America. If you're a billionaire from anywhere in the world, that please invest money in America and just tell the conservatives, hey, we're not going to ban you. Yeah, there is. I mean... When the CEOs of Twitter and Facebook are prioritizing wokeness and appeasing the left-wing calls for censorship, they're prioritizing those things over profit and over their bottom line because a lot of the people who use Facebook are conservatives and Republicans. And on Twitter, it's less, but it's still a significant amount. So there's a big market opening here. And they do make it hard to compete but you still can. And especially if you're somebody who's already a billionaire or has tons of capital, then I think it's a really promising opportunity. So I, I agree. I'm concerned about all the stuff that's happening right now, but that is what I see as the silver lining. You know, I, I have to say this as a comment here that I'm an entrepreneur. I mean, I do podcasts, but my main business is, uh, you know, running a proper textile manufacturing unit. And I have never come across a more stupid business strategy than Twitter. Uh, you have basically suspended your cash cow. From what I have understood, Donald Trump's tweets had the highest engagement of all human beings on planet Earth. Yes. He, Twitter was making losses before Trump became president. The, the first time in their life they made any kind of money was when this crazy man became the president. And he literally gave them all sorts of money. The first thing they do, I don't know who's making these calls at Twitter. They stop political ads. Why would you stop that? That was stupid decision number one. I think uh, Facebook did not. Twitter did. And then you take out your cash cow. The one man who is your cash cow, you take him out. Who are these people? I mean, have I thought America was all about entrepreneurial skills. Who the hell are these people who are taking these business decisions there? 
So these are people who are like woke, they're woke lefties and they came from the college uh, atmosphere where that is inculcated. And they now think that social justice is more important than profit or basic business sense because you're exactly right. And that's part of why there's an opening here because the current players are prioritizing like sensitivity to the woke left over basic business decisions. So anybody who's not stupid enough to do that and can get some capital and really launch something significant, there's a big opening there. Because like you said, these people have lost their dang minds with the decisions they're making. President Trump had the most Twitter followers. I forget the exact number, but it was huge. Like the, the second most person had like half, I think. He had more than double or maybe even 2.5 times as many Twitter followers as Obama. And, and Trump's tweets got engagement like you can't even imagine. So I wouldn't be surprised. There's a reason that Twitter's stock tanked the day they burned, they banned Trump. There's a reason. And that's all I'll say. Uh, imagine being a, a shareholder of Twitter, a significant shareholder, and going to that meeting with Jack Dorsey and saying, Jack, what have you done? <laughs> Why did you do this to me? I would be I selling it all. <laughs> I have to say, we have an Indian there, right there in the legal team in Twitter, Vijaya, who was there on Drogan, I think, with Jack when they had this whole discussion with Tim Pool. So, yeah, so uh, Twitter's the demise has an Indian connection too. So, so there, there you go. We can celebrate that, that part. So India's uh, positive contribution to the demise of Twitter. I think she's coming up with all these strategies, which is kind of crazy. But now let's get, get into one last part. I, I just wanted to know your views that so I'll give you the perspective from India. When an American tech giant bans their president, because technically Donald Trump is still the president of the United States of America. Yeah. When a tech giant bans the president of the most powerful country in the world, other countries are going to pay attention and they're going to not like the kind of power these companies have started to wield. Now, I don't know how much you're aware of that Uganda basically banned Facebook and Twitter temporarily just before their elections. And uh, uh, funny enough, Twitter is talking about free speech. I mean, it's just it's just pathetic. I think Twitter should just stop using these words. But I can tell you, as someone who is uh, politically aware in India, I think Indian political circles and Indian parliamentarians have already made statements showing concern and I think messages have been sent to these people that if you try to pull a stunt like this in India, we will shut you down the second day you pull that stunt. I mean, uh, and we have already set a precedent here. We have, I don't know if you are aware of it, India banned 100 Chinese apps. And TikTok was like a huge thing in India. I think every third kid was on TikTok. And you, you just can't get the kind of numbers you get in India because of the sheer population. And I don't know if these tech giants realize that especially India is going to be their biggest market in the future. You don't, because China is already not there, right? So we have 1.3 billion people and India is your big market. Do these tech giants have a death wish? Because if they do this, not only do they lose their American market share globally. And the second biggest point is that the message it sends to politicians in India is this is a foreign company interfering in our local politics. And that is not uh, that is not acceptable. So has this kind of created ripples in America? Are there people thinking so like Angela Merkel? I told you Angela Merkel already has showcased concern. And 
someone from the left who's showing concern. So are these companies actually keeping in mind these global realities too? I think they're not. And I hope the market punishes them exactly how you're saying uh, for exactly this reason, right? I mean, that's a great thing to hear that people in India won't stand for that because maybe if Peter Thiel starts his competitor and a bunch of Indian users help get it off the ground and flock to it, but that's all great. That's all great news. And these companies aren't considering these things. They're simply considering their, the pressure that they get from left-wing journalists and their social justice warriors that are inside the company, pressuring them, demanding, using the language of safetyism and all this kind of stuff. So they're not thinking about these global realities and it's not going to work out for them in the market because consumers worldwide, like you're saying, are going to not stand for this. So I think that's actually a good thing. Yeah, so let me take a few questions here. So someone has asked uh, you, do you think the regulation of conservatives like Josh Hawley and other bringing, uh, you know, and others might bring uh, more harm to free speech at a principle, as a principle, than good? Yes. So Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri, has proposed things like repealing Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. President Trump and Joe Biden support this. And the idea is to punish big tech because these platforms are censorious, which they are, unbiased. But in reality, Section 230 is a liability shield. So it means that Twitter is not liable for the content that people post. And so if you took that liability shield away, social media as we know it would basically blow up and couldn't function, right? Because like an insane amount of content is uploaded to YouTube every day. If they had to pre-screen every video and make sure there was nothing they could potentially get sued over for, then that would um, basically ruin the whole business model. I mean, you, would be, you wouldn't be allowed to live stream this video. You'd have to submit it, wait for the Facebook bureaucrats to review it, and they'd have a huge backlog, consult with their legal team, make sure nothing we say could get them in trouble, and then either they'll nix it because we said one thing that could maybe get them sued or they'll finally let it go live weeks later, maybe. So it would basically destroy social media as we know it. They want to just punish big tech. But like, I don't have any particular affinity for big tech. However, it's like you're going to hurt more than you're helping there. And there's millions of people that rely on these services. So the the the, regula the regulatory interventions proposed by Josh Hawley and those people are very, very misguided, I think. So here's the thing, right? So the, the classical debate in this subject to take it forward would be like, they always say, they give the telephone industry example that, okay, you know, you and I use a telephone or a cell phone, but terrorists use it too. So when terrorists are using it, uh, the speech they use, how can you punish your telephone company for what the terrorist has done or said during a conversation on, on the same service provider? And they extend the same logic to internet service providers. But the thing is, the cell phone companies do not censor you. Tech companies selectively censor you. They want the privileges of a tech platform, but want to behave like a media platform. So that's where the difference has to be drawn, right, Brad? No, not because you can't really draw that difference in the sense that like tech companies have to censor, right? Otherwise they would be flooded with porn and terrorist propaganda, right? So it's like they, they have to do that because part of the 
the, the difference between a telephone company and a tech platform is like what other people text to each other doesn't show up on your timeline, right? Like the part of the problem here is that they have to be allowed to censor because nobody wants them to just be unmitigated spewers. Now, we don't want political censorship, but you can't really tell them what they're allowed to do. The current Section 230 law specifically says they can censor whatever they want. They can censor anything they consider objectionable. Now, here's one thing. Some people say, well, why don't we insert a requirement that they have to be politically neutral? That's an interesting idea. But the problem is that then the government is in charge of deciding what is politically neutral. And that, oh boy, is that a bad idea. Kamala Harris is not who I want deciding. I don't like Jack Dorsey. I don't like Twitter. I don't like Facebook, but at least they're responding to markets and consumers somewhat. Kamala Harris would come in there and say, oh, this isn't about neutrality. This is about banning hate speech. So yeah, you need to block all these people or those ideas are dangerous. Those aren't free speech. That's dangerous to say that there aren't 97 genders. Um, so Kamala Harris and the government being in charge of certifying neutrality is also a horrible idea, even though it sounds like it would be a great thing if we could actually do it. I know. So, so this is the classic case of being stuck between a rock and a hard place where I don't know. It's just like on, on the one side, you have basically a, a 10 foot ditch. On the other side, you have a five foot ditch. You're going to die either way. So just pick which ditch you want. And, and, and that's what we're stuck at right now, considering the way big tech is behaving. So, so obviously you would not be supporting of the antitrust uh, uh, moves being made against these companies, right? So it depends which companies because I would have to know the specifics of all of them. But for example, like breaking up Facebook and separating Facebook and Instagram, I don't see how that helps anything. Like, how does that solve the free speech problem? It doesn't. And, it, and it, it, in fact, Facebook took over Instagram and made it a lot better <laughs> and made the service grow and improved it a lot. So um, the, the idea of breaking up the companies, to me, it's like, well, they're still all going to be run by woke liberals, they're still all going to have the same pressures for censorship. Like it doesn't really fix the problem at all. So I don't see how that would help. Uh, the one area where antitrust gets interesting is with like uh, what they did to Parler. Maybe they'll get sued for antitrust for that uh, with the deplatforming it from the app store and with the taking it away from Amazon Web Services. And like, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't really know if that's an antitrust violation or not. But maybe it is, and maybe that's worth pursuing. You'd have to talk to like antitrust lawyers about that. But as far as like breaking up Facebook and those kinds of ideas, I just don't see how it would help anything. So then, you know, somebody's asked this question, then who do you hold responsible in this entire fiasco? Because at the end of the day, Brad, whether we like it or not, these, these platforms are even if they're not a monopoly in terms of, um, let's say, in the business sense, in the classical sense, and technically they're all individual, different companies run by different people. But when you have a thought monopoly, when you have just one thought and people of a similar type running all platforms, it's like, you know, a new sort of religion and the clergy I don't know. I, I hate to use this word, but the way the tech giants in America are behaving, they sound a lot like a ulema to me. 
I don't know if you're exposed to the Muslim clergy or the clergy of any religion. It, no. it, it really scares me a lot. Where, you know, like you'll have people writing to the ulema and saying, uh, can I brush my teeth in a particular way? I'm not making this up, by the way. I mean, you should just read the question and answer sessions of Muslim clergy and average Muslims. It's hilarious. A very famous book is The World of Fatwas by a great Indian author, Arun Shori, where he details the weirdest questions people ask ulema. These tech giants are becoming uh, ulema. They're sitting on top of society and they're telling everybody, this is kosher, this is not. You can eat this food, you cannot do this. You can, and they're all of the same thought. The beauty about the world before this was that, okay, there was this thought, but there was another counter thought to, to kind of balance it out. So, so I know you'll come back and say, well, we'll eventually have a competitor in the market, but what about the turbulence? Because the competitor is not going to come up instantly, right? So what about the next three, four years of turbulence that we're going to face as a society just because these people have just become a thought monopoly? Well, exactly. But the problem is not necessarily the companies as they exist, but the, the mindset of the people that operates them. And that mindset is not just a, a specific tech phenomenon. That's the mistake there. It's something that people are believing across America. They're being taught in college that ideas can be dangerous and bad ideas need to be uh, censored to protect diversity and to not in, put people in danger. And they're, they're being taught that, you know, your emotional safety, it takes precedent over speech and debate. And all of these things have, in, have they've spread from the college campuses to the media, to the tech giants, et cetera, and, and also to Americans at large to some extent. And so, like, that's the problem and, and that we have to fix and, de and defeat. And I don't know how. I don't have all the answers. But it's like the problem is not specific to tech. This is just a particularly malicious manifestation of this ideology that is infecting American institutions and the populace. And that ideology, right, that is seeks to squash ideas instead of debate them, that is the ideology we have to defeat ultimately. So it's not just some specific tech issue. So, so what do you think? So we have president-elect Joe Biden, who's going to be the president in the, in the next few days. So do you think, uh, so somebody has asked this question where they're saying, do you think reality will hit them hard? when uh, they take power and when they actually try to implement some of these woke policies, uh, do you think, uh, so looking at the Biden cabinet, at least I don't know how woke it is. I was just looking at the names. It's pretty much Obama's cabinet. If you ask me, most of them are people who were with Obama. So do you think they're going to go woke, uh, uh, the Biden administration? So I think they'll do some things that are, I don't think they'll go full, full woke and full hard left on any of that stuff, but they will do some things. Like for example, Joe Biden just recently said that he wants the COVID stimulus, the next round to prioritize people by race. Uh, and I think they'll also reinstitute critical race theory education in the federal government, which is very far left stuff. So I think that stuff will happen behind the scenes, not because of Joe Biden specifically. I don't th I think he's kind of a, an old boomer who doesn't really know what's going on. He's not pushing these ideas, but it's more so that the federal government is so big that it's staffed with literally tens of thousands of political bureaucrats that they're going to be appointing and putting in power. 
And those kind of young, woke Democrats that are going to be put in those positions will be carrying out this stuff at the smaller level. So it's not going to be some like woke invasion from the top by any stretch, but you might see some of these really extreme policies being implemented by the different agencies at the regulatory and bureaucratic level. So in that scenario, just one last question, and then we can wrap it up, Brad. Do you have any hope for the libertarians in the near future? Um, maybe. So maybe this is the bright side that people aren't going to like it. They're going to see uh, most Americans don't believe that COVID stimulus should be prioritized on race, right? So if Joe Biden got, goes and does that, there, there will be a backlash, same like vice versa. If he actually does critical race theory in the federal government education programs, uh, people, if that, that is exposed to them, aren't going to like that. The whole like white fragility uh, kind of, uh, of education and, and left wing thought. So I think the bright side is just that if they go too woke, they will trigger a backlash from the public that will respond in electing politicians that reject those ideas. Cool. So, so Brad, before we wrap things up, uh, you know, is there anything, uh, uh, your specific project that you want to tell us about uh, before we wrap yeah, it up? Yeah. So uh, thanks again for having me on. And if people like our conversation, I'm doing this kind of stuff all the time. So they should subscribe to my podcast, Breaking Boundaries. It's on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And I know you threw the link in the description. And then subscribe to me on YouTube, too, because I post the videos as well. So thanks for having me on. And, and thanks to your audience for listening to what I have to say. It's, it's always a pleasure to listen to you, Brad. Whenever I lose my faith in libertarianism, I like to call you. <laughs> and my faith is reinstated in libertarian principles. So you're my go-to guy whenever I was like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? Appreciate it. <laughs> so then I talked to you and I was like, okay, no, no, there's one man there who's standing tall amidst all of this. So, so the pleasure is on mine. Uh, all right, guys, time to wrap things up. I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation. It's always nice to talk to Brad. Uh, like Brad mentioned, uh, if you go to the description of this podcast or if you're going to be listening to the audio version of this, I'm going to leave the link to Brad's podcast, or, or, or whether it's Apple or on YouTube. Please go and subscribe to his podcast. He's had many interesting guests. If you like what I'm doing over here, you can become a member of the YouTube channel or, you know, support me or Patreon or maybe buy the merchandise on kushalmehra.com. I'll see you guys next time. Until then, namaste, take care, goodbye.